passage about um, the Sabbath particularly. The Sabbath meaning that seventh day of rest that was all throughout the Bible for the purposes of being a Sabbath day of rest for the Lord, to worship the Lord, to stop everything we're doing and focus everything up and forward. Onward and upward is the great way to look about it. It's onward, it's forward thinking, and it's upward, it's heaven-minded, looking to where we are going, not just where we are. Hebrews 3, verse 7. The writer of Hebrews says this. Hear this this morning. (coughs) Therefore, the Holy Spirit says, Today, today, if you hear His voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion on the day of testing in the wilderness where your fathers put me to the test and saw my works for 40 years. Therefore, I was provoked with that generation, and I said, they always go astray in their hearts. They have not known my ways. And as I swore in my wrath, here's these words we never want to hear, they shall not enter my rest. That is a warning indeed. Take care, brothers, lest there be in you any evil or unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. But exhort one another every day, as long as it's called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. For we have come, for we have come to share in Christ, if indeed we hold to our original confidence firm to the end. As it is said, he repeats again, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your heart as in the rebellion. For who are those who heard and yet believed? Was it not all those who left Egypt, led by Moses? He's referring back to coming out of the Exodus. And with whom was he provoked for 40 years? 40 years in the wilderness after the Exodus. Was it not with those who sinned, whose bodies fell in the wilderness? Many of them died. None of them made it out. And to whom did he swear that they would not enter his rest? But to those who were disobedient. So we see that they were unable to enter because of unbelief. Therefore, while the promise of entering his rest still stands, it's still present today for them in the first century. Let us fear, lest any of you should seem to have failed to reach it. For good news came to us just as to them. But the message they heard did not benefit them because they were not united with faith. What was their good news? Well, parting of the Red Sea, feel pretty good about yourself. Like, wow, God's really on my side. They even had that. They walked out of the most powerful nation in the world into freedom. But they didn't believe. And he says again, For we who have believed enter that rest. As he said, As I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. Although his works were finished from the foundation of the world, for he has somewhere spoken, of the seventh day in this way. And God rested from the seventh day, from all his works. And again in this passage he said, they shall not enter my rest. Since therefore it remains for some to enter it, and those who formerly received the good news failed to enter because of disobedience, again he appoints a day, saying, today, through David, because he's quoting Psalm 95 throughout all this, who David wrote, 
through David so long afterwards, and the words already quoted, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. If you notice repetition, the danger would be, it seems like our hearts are prone to becoming hard. For if Joshua had given them rest, God would not have spoken of another day later on. So then, there remains, and here's the word, there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. For whoever has entered God's rest has also rested from his works as God did from his. Let us therefore, and here's an oxymoron if there was one. Let us therefore strive to enter that rest. Strive to rest. Strive to enter that rest so that no one may fall by the same sort of disobedience. The passage we looked at before, and we've been working through Colossians, is this one particularly in Colossians 2.16, where Paul goes to the church and says, listen, these false teachers that you have here, you need to tell them to stop teaching these terrible things. And what are the terrible things they're saying? Therefore, let no one pass judgment on you and with regard to eating or drinking, festivals, new moons, Sabbaths, all these things. Don't let them make all these legalistic rules for you. Be free. You're free in Christ. The whole point here for this morning to look over now, after seeing that, to look over to Hebrews 3 and 4 and find that here I'm going to attempt to say, yes, but there's also a Sabbath you should be worried about. Which is exactly the thing Paul said not to get worried about. And I hope to explain the difference. This is more of a complicated sermon, more like a theological sermon. Some people might be like, why are we doing this? This is, just go through the text, give me like the gospel straight up, right? <clears throat> and some will be particularly theologically or biblically minded, be very interested in the sermon and be like, wow, I wish they were all like that. And some people would be like, also considering why are we down in the weeds? Like, where are we going here today? My point is this, up front, is to say, what I, my intention, my hope, is I want you to have a very strong conviction of the Sabbath, a day of the week for worship. And particularly because of everything we just read in Hebrews, which particularly is repeated, I swore in my wrath they will not enter my rest. I swore in my wrath they will not enter my rest. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your heart. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your heart. That warning again and again and again. And the threat, which actually was brought upon a certain people, that you will not enter my rest, is, is real. Pastorally, my motivation is, if I can convince you, convince you from the scriptures that this idea of a Sabbath rest is God's word to you, and not as particularly falling also in the other ditch of being uh, under the same uh, threat as the false teachers in the Colossian church of being legalistic with you and tricking you into binding you and, and, and tricking you to feel bad about not being in church or worshiping. I don't want to do that as well. The only way I can avoid that, as we've said, between the difference of legalism or lawlessness, is I cannot separate God's law from the Lord. So what I need to do is I need to connect God's word and the Lord of that word to you so you personally are convinced. Because this is the thing, pastorally, people always say, well, should I be in church? Sorry, I wasn't in church. Pastorally, I'm supposed to say, well, yeah, you should probably be in church, right? But, but see, that's, I'm just another child in the family of God, what do I have to say to you? How, how could I bind your days? But if there's a father in this house, 
Right? See how it changes? What if, what if the Father said, this is the way it should be? My, my motivation this, this morning is that, so that, that you would be particularly convinced. And not just for convinced sake, convinced because pastorally I'm charged with care for your souls. And the pastor is analogous to a shepherd, and then that would make us all sheep, and me just a little bit of a, a sheep with a tie on today, by God's grace. Um, the, the point is, we just read Hebrews 4, and they go astray a lot. And so if I can do my best to serve you as a church, to say, there is a way to not go astray so much. It's a gift. It's a time portal, you might say, called the Sabbath. If I can convince you of that, that's my goal. It's very practical, actually, this whole reason we're going into this topic. I have seven to maybe nine meetings this, this, this uh, week. And if you ask me now, I couldn't recite them all. I could probably get most of them. And I'm not entirely sure of the times on all. But I have a Google Calendar. And you know what? I'm a Google Calendar legalist. I'm very rigid with my Google Calendar. If I mess that Google Calendar up, if I get the time wrong, I will not be at your meeting. If I'm supposed to meet with you and I typed it in wrong the time, I'm sorry. That was like literally close to the Ten Commandments for my schedule that day. And I need that, right? But, but why am I so legalistic? It, it appears legalistic. No, it's love. Value the person I'm meeting. Value their time. I want to meet with them because I care about them. But from the outside of that context of love, it looks very rigid and legalistic. Oh my gosh, why can't you just be like an Eastern country where you kind of just show up whenever you want? I don't know, but we have Google Calendar and this is our culture because it's the value of the person to show up. It's the same thing here. This idea of being before the face of God on a regular way. It appears from the outside, oh, this legalistic Christian. Go to church, go to church. Why didn't you go to church? Uh-uh. It's love. Why not? See how the, the difference, if you don't separate the law from the Lord, you still have love. And if you have love, then legalism and lawlessness fall away. It all makes sense now. Also, this VBS was an amazing thing for the times that I saw. I was there <coughs> on, on Monday morning with the kids in opening. I uh, made it through the first opening on Friday as well, and there for the closing ceremony on Friday night. The, the, the theme, um, the acting, Keith doesn't just play the clarinet. Can I just say that for everyone who doesn't have the ability to know? Uh, Kathy, obviously amazing, supporting. Yes, for those who know, this is appropriate clapping. Um, <coughs> it was amazing. Everything was inculcated. Laughs, jokes, the, the skits, uh, the, the teachers, um, the cookies, the, the crafts, the decorations. It's all making penetrations into their mind. And the theme was time travel. Just amazing. Time travel. So I, I hope to hit that theme to say, this is what we're talking about when we say time travel. The Sabbath is this. What I just read to you through Hebrews 4 is nothing more than a biblical model of a time travel portal or a time machine, if you were. I don't know if you have these experiences watching these <coughs> sci-fi movies uh, about time travel and whatnot. You'll see that image. We could leave that there. We'll get to it later. Um, <coughs> I get nervous, right, watching Star Wars. When they get into warp speed, I'm like, what if, what if you're going to warp speed just a little wrong that way? You know, there's a, there's, it just makes you nervous to think time travel, right? Going very large distances, very great distances over time where you find uh, particular, particular movies like these uh, superhero movies and whatnot in which everyone is um, 
jumping in and out of different time frames, and they have these superpowers and, and abilities to jump through time. And I think to myself, <coughs> that's just nerving. Like, what if you went to the wrong time here and you get stuck and all this stuff? There's a real threat to that, though. The whole warning here is, I swore in my wrath you will not enter my rest. Today, if you hear his words, do not harden your heart. Not all of us are going to the same place. We're all time travelers. This moment has passed, and you have entered into now. And now is gone, and you have entered into now. The future is pressing upon you every second. You are traveling through time. The warning here is that we're not all going the same direction. And God's model, his, his pathway, his grace is that he's given this thing called the Sabbath. In which to know if you are, if you have calibrated your time machine right. If you are going to the eternal glory that is spoken of here. Colossians opens with Jesus being the image of the invisible God. The firstborn of all creation. It says he is the head of the church, the beginning, the firstborn from the dead. So you have Jesus being Lord over all of creation. You have Jesus being Lord over all of redemption, being reborn from the dead. And this is the model to see when looking at the Sabbath. The idea of creation and redemption. Why would Paul say, do not let anyone bother you about Sabbaths? And then you flip over to Hebrews 4 and it says, now you should remember there remains a Sabbath for the people of God. It has to do with two particular things. There is a Sabbath law that goes deep back into the depths of creation itself. And there is a Sabbath law that was stuck with the nation of Israel and connected to them. When that Sabbath law in the nation of Israel was gone with the nation itself and the temple and the sacrifices and the animals, everything that had to do with redemption, what we call redemption law, so also the Sabbath was gone. In the Old Testament, if you did not show up for Sabbath, if you not honor the Sabbath or do it appropriately, you could be killed. Right? You, you actually, it was actually a capital offense. We don't do that anymore, obviously. Right? There's a reason. It's not just because uh, Christian theology has moved past all that. Listen, that was God's commandment at a point in time. It is not immoral. To say that that was not a good law is to indict God with making bad laws. The reason we don't do that anymore is because that whole thing's gone. Jesus Christ has died. Everything related to the redemption law, everything related to the temple has passed. But still the Sabbath has remained. Because it's tied not only to redemption, everything related to the Old Testament temple, but also to creation. From the very beginning, the way God created the world and made all things to work for us. One <clears throat> theologian uh, named um, Gerhardus Voss says this, and this is very helpful to think of for yourself and mine. God has redeemed the world through what we might call objective acts in history. Great redemptive acts. 
but he's also in the process of redeeming the world through, through small, mysterious, quiet, subjective acts. He's doing it just as powerfully, but it's not as objective and historic. For example, there was only one time, objectively, that God parted the Red Sea. One time in which one nation walked through the Red Sea on dry land and entered into the wilderness with absolute freedom and liberty from their captors. That was stuck as a historical vent back in the past and it is done. It is complete. There is no more. There is no more Red Sea crossing. There is no more Red Sea parting. At the same time, there is only one time that God would choose to make himself known and incarnate himself in a man and to put himself on a tree and to die for you and I. That happened one time in the past. It is locked in history as an objective historical reality. It is not to be repeated again. It is done. Yet, subjectively, God is in the process now still working through redemption. He is redeeming people. We call that conversion, regeneration, being born again. Your inner man becomes alive. The Holy Spirit is poured out upon you and you begin to hear the gospel. See the beauty of Jesus Christ. The gospel strikes you and you are moved. That is subjective. That is just as much the um, powerful operations of God as the parting of the Red Sea. Yet it is quietly moving and being done within the subjective mind of humanity. Down all the way to our present growth and holiness. God is redeeming you. You're not redeemed yet. Even though you were redeemed 2,000 years ago. Does that, does that make sense? Right? You were redeemed 2,000 years ago on the cross. The blood was offered for you. It was paid for you. It was shed for you. And your redemption in a certain sense was absolutely complete. Do not add one thing to this. This is perfect. Lock it up. Tie it up with a knot. You are saved. And right now in the process you are still not saved. You are being saved. And you will be saved. Subjectively, God is working through His Spirit now. This makes all the sense when you see in one way how we read in Colossians where Paul says um, something very bizarre. He says, um, (coughs) I rejoice in my suffering for your sake in my flesh. For I'm filling up what is lacking in Christ's affliction. It doesn't make sense. Right? Why would anything be lacking in Christ's affliction? No. There is nothing. Objectively, it's done. But God is saving the world. And Paul understands that he's doing it subjectively as Paul is suffering on behalf of the church to bring them the gospel so that they would be given the words mixed with the Spirit to come to new life and redemption continues. That's what's lacking. That's what has to continue. That's where you and I are in this present moment. So redemption is complete, objectively. Therefore, we say, particularly understand, that's why we would say the scriptures are complete. Right? Every time through scripture, every time God ever did a saving act, rescued in battle, parting the Red Sea, the incarnation of his own son for the salvation of the world, it was always matched with a word explaining what he was doing. So God would always do what he wants to and then explain why he did it. He's not doing any of that anymore. He sent his own son into the world. He has accomplished full salvation. There is nothing more that could be said. And therefore, the scriptures are closed. There is no more revelation from God because there is no more redemption from God. The only thing that remains is for the second coming of Christ. Voss says this particularly. There lies only one epoch in the future where we may expect objective central redemption to be resumed. 
Namely, in the second coming of Jesus Christ. There will be a time when he comes and he will wrap it all up in the new heavens and the new earth and it will be glorious. That, particularly, the Hebrew text is saying, you want to get there. That's what you want. Don't fall away. Don't, fall, don't lose sight. Do not have an unbelieving or hard heart. You see, it's locked in time. Jesus has saved on the cross. But what remains is what is going on in your soul. Subjective redemption. Are you being saved? Are you growing in salvation? Are you growing in godliness? Are you moving closer to the glory of God? Are you moving away from Him in hard-heartedness and sin and rebellion? That is in flux. And the text is clearly saying, do not just take for granted that you simply just trusted in Jesus and everything is great. You need to know if your faith in Christ was real. And the one particular way to know that is if you are moving in successive data points, as it were, through the timeline of God's created order into glory, which is coming. And the data point to look for is, he says, particularly Sabbath. What does it mean to you? To be given the privilege of stopping and looking upon the Jesus Christ every seven days. If your heart likes that, if your heart loves that, your heart's going to love heaven. If you're not moving along those lines, then take care. Lest you have an unbelieving heart falling away, saying, you will not enter my rest. This particularly, we have the Ten Commandments. And I hope to point this out in the time uh, we have. I don't know if that's a slide or not. Um, when Paul says, uh, don't let anyone judge you on Sabbaths, new moons, festivals. It's kind of hard to see, but you know them. Thou shalt not have any other gods, graven images. Do not take God's name in vain. Honor your father and mother. Don't kill anybody. Don't commit adultery. Now here's the thing. How come whenever you roll through the Bible, you never find Paul stopping and saying, now Colossians, please, let's just be reasonable here. We don't want any legalists here that are all down on adultery. You see, we don't want any legalists here that are saying, don't let anyone judge you in a matter of how you just choose to do murder. Some murder this way and some murder that way. Whoa, whoa, whoa. Every one of those, we want. Isn't it particular that we would just say, except for number four, the Sabbath thing. That was just ceremonial. But isn't it peculiar, out of ten, every one of those is so morally fundamental that it is essential to being a godly person, to following Jesus Christ, that you would say, I must, I must not covet. I must watch my heart, the desires of my heart. And right along the line, actually lower to the list. If you take the list in preceding order to see what is most important, you have all the way up there the transcendent commandments, all relating to God. All the way down to four, then five starts with the horizontal things, dealing with how you deal with other men. And if we think coveting is bad, that's number ten. How about number four? The problem is, it's not just about everything that was happening in the Old Testament. The Sabbath, see, is a link, a time portal of everything that God has been doing from the beginning to the end. 
And so part of that travels through what's called the nation of Israel and everything related to the temple. For example, it says this in Deuteronomy 5, the commandment given to Israel, Observe the Sabbath day and keep it holy, as the Lord your God commanded you. You shall remember that you were slaves in the land of Egypt. The Lord God brought you out from there with a mighty hand, now stretch arm. Redemption. Objective redemption. Right? There's a reason the Israelites were to have the Sabbath. Because it was commemorating God's particular objective redemption and redeeming a nation. That's gone. The nation's no longer relevant in salvation. The temple has been destroyed. This reason for the Sabbath is no more. That's what Paul's saying. Do not let anyone get wrapped up, wrap you up in all the accoutrements of the law of God relating to the temple and redemption. Because it's all wrapped up. These are elemental things. They're done away with. That was preschool stuff. Right? Don't let anyone... He said they were all types, but the shadow... They were all uh, shadows, but the substance belongs to Christ. It's not important. But then, you also find in Exodus 20, this... Exodus 20 verse 8 says, another, this is the Ten Commandments in Exodus. Remember the Sabbath day and keep it holy. Six days you shall do labor and no work. But the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. For in six days the Lord made the heavens and the earth and the sea and all that is in them. And he rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord God blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. That, that's the one to sink your teeth into. It's beautiful. It's beautiful. There's a reason for the Sabbath. It's not just because a particular nation of Israel entered through a particular water of the Red Sea and was free from a particular nation of Egypt. It goes back further. It goes back to the reality of how God created the world. And the rationale for it is that in six days God created. And on the seventh he rested. Therefore, it says, and this is Genesis 2, 2. This is what he did. He rested on the seventh day. And Genesis 2, 3 says, God blessed the seventh day and he made it holy because on it God rested from all the work he had done in creation. I want you to hear this. Hear this. This is how you calibrate your time machine. How are you going to know you're getting there? Getting to glory. It's a beautiful thing. God, first off, sanctified the day. They said he made it holy. Everywhere through scripture, when God makes a day holy, it was always for people. A holy day was not just God saying, hey, look how holy this day is. All throughout scripture, particularly Nehemiah 8, 9 to 11, if you choose to look, a holy day is referenced for people. God says, this day is holy for you. I don't need holy days. I'm the holy one. Okay? Like the He's not saying this day is holy because he just likes holy things. The day is holy. It's sanctified for you, people. In creation, where there was Adam and Eve and no Jewish people at all. Everybody was wrapped up in that story. Everybody who's ever been a person is wrapped up in that story. It was for them. And he says he blessed the day. He blessed the day. There's a particular blessing to this. Do you want to know God? Do you want to walk with the Lord? There's a particular blessing. To, see, God made everything. And when he made everything, he always said it was so good. And he made the animals. And he particularly says on the fifth day, he blessed the animals. And then on the sixth day, he made Adam and Eve. And he said, he blessed Adam and Eve. God blesses things. The things he makes. And then he also, why not bless time? He blessed a garden. Why? For them so they have food. He blessed time. For who? For himself? He blessed this day for them. 
to be blessed. There is a goodness to it. There is a grace in it. There is a glory that is wrapped up inside of it to lead you to the place. There are so many pitfalls from here to there. There are so many idols in this world. And your heart and mine are prone to loving them. And God particularly has set a time. But if you set this time aside, you will cleanse yourself of idols that have accrued in six days. And you will find your mind fixed upon the future yet again. And remember where you are going. And you reorient all your time so that if you do, and I always hated this in Star Wars, hitting hyperspeed, how do you know you're not going to hit a planet? I don't know. How do you travel through this time? How do you know you're really going to glory? How do you know you're actually going to transcend into the highest heaven to be with Jesus Christ? It's all about your heart and your loves. And you only know that particularly through these commandments. And one of them is particularly oriented to time. Say, where is your love in time? God blesses this day. He blesses it. See, when God blesses something, it's for man. Particularly, you see the context even after the fall. When sin entered the world, what did he do when Adam and Eve were fallen in sin? Did he curse them? No, actually, he didn't. He cursed the ground. Why did he curse the ground? He cursed the ground for them. Cursed be the ground. Thorns and thistles and much labor and sweat will produce fruit for you. So if God can curse the ground to affect humanity, he's also blessed a day to affect humanity. The blessing is for you. From the very beginning in creation, Jesus says this in Mark 2, 27, the Sabbath was made for man. The Sabbath was made for man. He doesn't say the Sabbath was made for Jewish people. He said the Sabbath was made for an heir. Man. All humanity. From the beginning, it was intended this way. From the beginning, when the perfect sinless world of Adam and Eve being there, and they were particularly given the mandates, the dominion mandates, the um, creation ordinance, subdue, exercise dominion, multiply, fill. All these things take energy. Do you have children? That's exhausting. Be fruitful, multiply. Be fruitful, multiply. Fill, subdue, exercise dominion. Cut your grass, go to work, manage your schedule, do your job. Have dominion in every domain that God's given you. Govern it with the wisdom, sovereignty, and power that God would have done. You are an image bearer of God. Work that way very hard. And the necessary consequence of all these dominion mandates he gives is one more dominion mandate. Which he says, now rest. Rest as I have rest. I worked hard. I created everything in six days. And I completed it. And I sat down and rested. Now govern your life how I govern mine. I've made you in my image. Image me. Work hard. Dominion. Fruitful. Multiply. And then rest. Do that as a pattern. Do that as a pattern. The importance of seeing this is understanding that this is the way God... (coughs) has us transverse through time. And so what we do in the remaining time is look particularly at Hebrews, uh, mostly verse by verse, walking through it um, in succession. So I can show you this. My point, again, closing here, is to convince you from Scripture to calibrate your time machine so that you would land on streets of gold. The possibility of not entering that rest is real. If you have your Bibles open, please keep your finger through Hebrews. We will travel through it in Hebrews 3.7, starting. Particularly this slide would be helpful at this moment. Because I understand that explaining this, in a relatively short period of time, 
uh, will be complicated because it's a complicated text. The Holy Spirit says, today if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the day of rebellion. On the day of testing in the wilderness where your fathers put me to the test, I swore in my wrath, 311, they will not enter my rest. We have our Bibles open in Hebrew 4. Oh, I'm sorry, the slide please. Bible's open to Hebrews 4. You see that as item D. What he just did is he did an intertextual echo. And what makes this so complicated is the text is full of them. Hence the, the analogy of a time machine. What he has done is he has taken the Sabbath, held it up, and then tried to look through the corridor of the time this way in the past and through the corridor of time into the future and to put it right in front of your face to see. Do you see where you are going? He references C, the part where he says, the Holy Spirit says, that means the inspired word of God, quoting Psalm 95. He starts off by quoting Psalm 95, which is D, the warning. David's warning, then, see why we have an analogy, or why we have an illustration? Complicated. Because David's quoting. He's quoting David who's quoting, right? And David is referencing, in his psalm, he says this in Psalm 95, 7, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts, as in Meribah. What's well, Meribah? Look over for Meribah. That's Numbers 14. So David is referencing Numbers 14. Hebrews 4 is referencing Psalm 95. Do you see how this is getting a little complicated? Numbers 14, 21 says, Not all of the men who have seen my glory and my signs that I did in Egypt in the wilderness and put me to the test this many times, I swore in my wrath they will not enter my rest. That's the warning. So, Moses' model of failure. Moses did not enter the promised land. The people with him did not enter the promised land. David, hundreds of years later, references that and says, remember those guys that didn't make it? And puts it in his psalm as a warning today. If you hear his voice, don't harden your heart. Then, in the first century, the writer of Hebrews says, remember David who said those guys didn't make it and Moses who didn't make it? Time travel, right? We're looking through the Sabbath of how it either will show you you are entering the rest or not entering the rest. That's the warning of the writer of Hebrews. Down to the present danger where he says in Hebrews 3, 12, Take care, brothers, lest there be in you an evil and unbelieving heart, leading you to fall away from the living God. The promise of rest still stands, Hebrews 4, 1 now. Therefore, while promising... Uh, that he says the entering of the rest still stands, let us fear lest anyone should fail to reach it. Hebrews 4.4, 4, some were spoken. This is the ultimate time travel, see? Hebrews 4.4, 4, some were spoken of the seventh day. In Genesis 2.2, item A, he's going back further now. I need you to see this. I want you to be convinced of your own. He goes back further to Genesis 2.2. God rested on the seventh day from all his works. He concludes in Hebrews 4.6, Since it remains for some to enter that rest, those who formerly received the good news failed to enter because of disobedience. Again, 4.7, He appoints a day, a certain day, calling it today, if you hear His voice and not harden your hearts, through the writer of David. And then, all of this to say, Hebrews 4.8, If Joshua had given them rest, God would not have spoken of another day. That's the linchpin. He ties it all together to say, Moses didn't enter that rest, but who did? Who got in to go to the promised land? The next generation. Joshua led them to the promised land. 
which is all remarkable. So in Numbers 14, they don't get into the promised land. Moses doesn't make it and his whole generation with him. But Joshua gets to go and the generation with him. And then in Psalm 95, David says, remember, you couldn't fail from entering that rest. The irony of it all is David is writing that while he's in the promised land. Doing actually pretty well, I might add. Very powerful kingdom. Everything's great. Food's good. It's wealth. It's never been better. And David says, we haven't entered the promised land. The writer of Hebrews alludes on that and says, if Joshua was able to give them rest, David in Psalm 95 wouldn't have spoken of another day. All because that's not the Sabbath. That's not the rest. It didn't have to do with the temple. It didn't have to do with the nation of Israel. He goes back to Genesis 2-2 and says, that's the rest we're looking for. That's what we want. Adam never entered into that either. He sinned and fell. He was given the privilege of doing everything God wanted him to do. And there was this tree of life in which if he would have passed the test, it's suggested in the book of Revelations, that he could have entered in to the rest, that he would have finished the whole model of God working and resting. And then Adam working and resting and entering in to eternal glory and life immortal which is unable to be taken away. That is the nature of Genesis. And no one has ever met into that. And so there remains a day, calling it today. You need to get there. That's the Sabbath we're looking for. And since that still has not been met, therefore the verse ends in Hebrews 4.9. So there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. That's the only time he mentions Sabbatismos, the word Sabbath. And that is for us today. You've been invited to the table. Let us pray. Father, this is... Our Sabbath, Lord, this is the image to be brought upon our minds. To know that we are working through time. Working through time, Lord. And we seek the rest. Lord, we have not entered that. We are tired. Our eyes are heavy. Our bodies ache. As we grow older, the days are long and the years are shorter. Lord, we need your rest. Father, we pray that you would bless us now as we make this before you, this promise, this covenant before you now, that we will be your people and you will be our God. In Jesus' name, amen.